Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you the guest speaker for the June 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society, Anthony Miller in the history of the Whitechapel Mission. Mr. Miller is the current director of the Whitechapel Mission, originally called the Working Lads Institute and Home, an organization that has been caring for the homeless and the needy in Whitechapel since 1876, and during the time of the Whitechapel murders, it was in their building on Whitechapel Road where the inquests were held into the deaths of several of the victims. But the role that it played during the Jack the Ripper murders is a mere footnote in its 140-year history of serving the destitute in the East End. And so without further ado, let's turn it over to Tony Power at the Chamberlain Hotel in London as he introduces Anthony Miller with the history of the Whitechapel Mission. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the June 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. And as Sue was saying, it's such a beautiful day out there. It's been, weather's been great here in London, but it's terrific that so many of you have chosen to join us tonight for what should be a fascinating uh, talk. Um, uh, we'd also like to thank all of you who are listening in online through the Rippercast podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoy tonight. We're sure you will. And if you want to find out more about the Whitechapel Society, then we have a website, which is whitechapelsociety.com. But we hope you come and join us if you're listening in. If you're ever in London, please come and find us. We'd love to see you. And finally, I'd like to welcome um, our guest speaker for tonight, um, Anthony Miller. Anthony, it's great to meet you, and thank you so much for coming. Uh, I'm looking forward to a really interesting uh, discussion tonight. Um, I have to be honest with you, the first time I went on a Jack the Ripper walk, and I'm sure that most of us in this room have done that, my expectation was that it was going to be a lot about the actual murders themselves, maybe a bit bit graphic, um, and a lot of discussions about who was Jack the Ripper. And I was really pleasantly surprised to find that the tour spoke a lot about the victims of the crime and what their life was like here in the London of the 1880s. It gave me an awful lot of sympathy for these poor women. Their, their life was really hard, and it was really difficult. And they all had three things in common. They were all poverty, they were all homeless, and they were all suffer from addiction. Most of them were alcoholics. And unfortunately, as Anthony will be telling us, the same is still true today. In 2014, the Whitechapel Society decided to support a local charity. And it was Mark Galloway, the main man here on my right, who actually came up with the Whitechapel Mission. And the Whitechapel Mission was a perfect charity for us. They're locally based, they were around in 1888, and they support vulnerable people in this area, just like the ones that, we've, that I've just described. So who better to talk us through the aims and activities and the history of the Whitechapel Mission than the main man, the guy who actually runs the organisation. He started out as a volunteer himself in the 80s, and now he's actually in charge of running the, the Whitechapel Mission. And in 2012, he received an MBE for Care for the Homeless. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Miller. Thank you very much. Good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for setting the bar so high. Could you a bit lower? Then I may have been able to achieve it. Um, I wish to share with you two histories to start off with. Um, the history of the organization and the history of the properties that we actually have occupied and still do. 
So to start off, I want to take you back to 1860. Anybody here remember 1860? Anybody around in 1860? No, that's okay. It just means that nobody's going to say, no, I was there and it didn't happen that way. Um, 1870. Then I have to keep an eye on you, sir. Um, 1860, no National Health Service, no unemployment benefit, no housing benefit. Um, if you took ill, you died, unless you had money. If you were homeless, you would end up in the workhouses, or you would end up in prison. These were the only two places that society could put you. And if you consider the Oliver Twist story, which of course is a, a work of fiction, but in reality is based on the observations of its author, who was absolutely fascinated by the East End of London, and many of his books are based on true observations. These young boys, these 10-year-old boys, were going into the city and stealing wallets and pocketbooks. Um, and of course, when caught, the courts would send them to prison or send them to the workhouses. In the case of Oliver Twist himself, the story suggests he had been in the workhouses since being a baby and escaping from that environment, prison was the next likely outcome. Luckily, it turns out he's got a rich granddad who lives in Westminster and off he goes. What happened to the Artful Dodger? What happened to the other kids that were actually being abused through being forced to steal so that they could get a roof over their head and actually a square meal? Well, they would go to the workhouses. And in 1860, a group of men came together, businessmen in the city, and spoke to the Lord Mayor and said, there must be a better solution. And over a period of years, they discussed it. They tried to find funding for it. And in 1886, they started an organization called the Working Lads Institute. And the idea was that the courts would send young offenders to reside within this organization, this building, and they would be trained, given a trade, and actually an opportunity to pay back society through helping people even less fortunate than themselves. And that building is sitting right next door to the Whitechapel tube station today. If you stand there and look closely, you will see the words, the Working Lads Institute, still across the top of the building, but they've been painted out. So although the brickwork stands proud, you've got to look for it. And it was exactly that. It was an opportunity for these youngsters to get a trade. Many of them moved off into Essex to become farmers. Many joined the Navy. Many of them actually found other trades. And as part of their work, they were required to serve breakfast to homeless adults on the streets of Whitechapel. And in its first year, it served 11,000 breakfasts. Now, today, it's a pound shop. If any of you get a chance to walk through the door and walk around the place, you will find that the floor makes a lot of noise. It's wooden. It's not the original floor. The original floor is actually a 12 foot lower. And gradually, somehow over the years, Whitechapel Road has grown by 12 foot. Don't ask me how, 
I've got no idea. But the original floor was 12 foot lower. There is a public bath in there. And I don't mean a swimming pool. I mean a public bath where members of the public could come in and bathe. It was filthy and it used to stink. And it's still there in the basement today. It's boarded over and on top of that is now the storeroom to the actual pound shop. If you go up a floor, you will find that the windows have been replaced, but they were all stained glass when they were put in. Don't ask me why. It wasn't a church, but they were all stained glass windows that actually looked out across to the Royal London Hospital. Anybody ever heard of the Whitechapel and Bow Railway? Whitechapel and Bow Railway? No, we call it the district line today. And, of course, it's owned by TfL. But it stopped at Whitechapel. Didn't go to Bow. I've got no idea why it was called the Bow and Whitechapel tube station, or, or railway station. But it was stopped at Whitechapel. And our building, this building that had been custom built, was actually the wall at which the train would hit if it didn't stop. In 1926 they actually wanted to extend that train line to Bow. Probably why it's called the Whitechapel and Bow Railway. And they extended it, but were in the way. So at that point, our building was actually, or half our building was compulsory purchased, and actually the money was used to actually upgrade the rest of it. The problem was, I've missed a bit out, but it doesn't make any difference. The problem was, this work was so positive in the effect that it had on pocketbooks being stolen in the city that the people who were funding it stopped funding it 20 years later. And their argument was very simple. Why am I paying for this charitable work when there isn't anybody picking our pockets or robbing us anymore? And of course the reason they weren't was the work was actually doing what it was supposed to do and stopping it. It announced in the Times in 1896 that it was going bankrupt because it had no longer got the funding to continue. And at that point, the Methodist Church stepped in and said, no, what you're doing here is too important. It has to continue. We will take over the work for you. And the immediate reaction from the trustees was, ooh, church, we don't want you preaching, proselytizing, or trying to convert people to Christianity, this is not what the work's about. And the Methodist Church said, that's not what we want to do. We want to continue the work. And it, a deal was struck whereby the Methodist Church took over the work, but there wouldn't be any of those preaching, proselytizing, or conversions that you would think of possibly with a church. At that point, the work was renamed and it was renamed to the Working Lads Institute of the Methodist Church. So far, I haven't used the words Whitechapel Mission once. Because nobody, that's not what it was called. Within 20 years of the church taking it over, it had grown to such a size that the building was no longer big enough. Sitting across the road, next door to what is now the post office, or was the post office, they've just shut it, 
there was a huge, big, old Baptist church that was sitting there absolutely empty. And I'll tell you why it was sitting there empty as the second part of the history, because that's even more fascinating in many ways. But it's sitting there empty. It turns out that the church had borrowed money to build it. The congregation had got too small to be able to fund the mortgage. And they had had to declare bankruptcy. So the building is sitting there empty. And it's available for £6,000. This is 1909. The minister took a walk across there to speak to the... um, uh, I don't know who owned it at the time or who was looking after... The, uh, the, the sales, but went over to see them and said, I want this building, but I've only got £3,000. And they said, well, we can't help you. It's going to cost six. And this is recorded, and I've read it, and I've got the paperwork in the, in the file here. He suggested to them, when you die and you go to heaven... Do you want me standing on the right-hand side saying, Lord, let them in, they were good people and helped the poor people of East End? Or do you want me to say, these money grabbers shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the gates? And somehow they went, do you know, you can have it for £3,000. <laughs> can you imagine going into the city and trying to get away with that today? So he got it for £3,000. And the work moved across to the new Baptist church and the existing Working Lads Institute building became the housing required for the staffing levels that were required to actually operate the work. So, like I say, the Bow and sorry, the Whitechapel and Bow Railway have already took half of our building. And in 1969, it's now TFL, London Underground. They decide, we want the rest. And basically they now own all of the properties along that side of Whitechapel Road. And we were one of the last to be compulsory purchased. So in 1969 we got thrown out of there completely. And they gave us a chunk of money and a plot of land behind the Baptist church that we already owned. And at that point the building, the Baptist church, was knocked down. And what is standing there today was built. So it's 50 years old, twice the size, and supposed to be, in theory, custom-built for what we do. If I get my hands on the architect that got an award for the custom-built building, I'm telling you, he wouldn't walk straight for a week. (laughs) Custom-built. The Baptist Church, I don't know if any of you will remember this, it was still there in 1969. It was very much the traditional church. Huge, big sweeping stone stairs and two massive sets of oak doors. And you would go through and into, straight into a huge church that would sit 600 people. But nobody was using it. There were two shops on the front, a tailor's and a cobbler's. And they were in the two corners. And that generated enough money to actually pay for the minister and the staff so that the church could operate. It was built in 1860 and opened by a Baptist minister called Sturgeon, which was very famous within the Baptist church. But before it was a Baptist church, it was a Zion chapel. Built and funded 
by the Duchess of Huntingdon. Now, I'm going to take you right back now, just in case he's still awake. Anybody around in 1480? No, okay. No, not even him, that's good. There's a Barclays Bank one block away from us, and it's on the junction of something called Mile End Gate. And it's the start of Mile End Road, which goes out to Bow. It was the site of a gate into the East End of London. It goes back to the Roman times, when there was a Mott and Bailey, a wooden fence, and this set of gates that protected the outer city before you got the one mile to the inner city walls at Tower Bridge. So somebody came up with the idea that every farmer that's coming into London through those gates with their sheep, their cows, um, maybe their grain, their corn, whatever it is, their apples that they were bringing in from Essex, to deliver to the Spitterfields market, the meat markets, or everywhere else in the city, needed somewhere to stay overnight. We need a travel lodge. We need somewhere where you can park your wagon, field for your sheep or your cows, and then overnight sleep, and then maybe have a drink, and then go into the city four or five in the morning to deliver your wares. Of course, in those days, the meat was never carried on a refrigerated lorry after it had been slaughtered outside the city. It was brought in on the hoof and killed at the meat market. So somebody came up with this idea and decided to build, just inside that gate, the White Raven Tavern. And the idea, just as it sounds, is it's a tavern. There is a park for your wagon. There are fields all the way around it with uh, pens for the animals. There is room to park your, uh, your trailer full of whatever it is product you're going to take into the city. There's an opportunity to have a drink. And there is an opportunity to sleep before you go into the city. And its name, the White Raven Tavern, comes from the fact that at the back of the building, and this is the bit that was owned by London Underground that they gave us in 1969, there was some ravens kept in cages. And this was all to do with the fact, you've got to remember how far we're back, we're still back in the 14th, 15th century, you know, the late 1400s. The king had been told, if the ravens leave Tower Bridge, your kingdom will fall. Okay? So like any sensible king, he had a spare set of ravens sitting in cages in the east end of London. So that if they ever did clear off from Tower Bridge, he could just bring the new ones in and say they haven't gone anywhere. And that's where the name the raven comes from. The white is not because there were white ravens, but because, of course, the white chapel that gave Whitechapel its name actually lent itself to a lot of other places as well. So the white part of it comes from there. And if you go into our basement today, the actual stone that you would cross to actually walk into the public house part is still there. The foundations are still there. It is very worn. It's about four inches worn off the stone in this way. And there's about two inches worn off the stone this way. But it's still in the basement. The problem was... Somebody had this idea that actually having black slaves was not a clever idea and they needed to be released. And they were. The problem was they were still black. 
and a lot of society still would not accept them. Even though they're now free, men and women, they were not accepted. And there are a lot of blue plaques around the Whitechapel area for freed slaves who were artists and poets and actually were contributing to society, but still not allowed in the city. And they needed somewhere to meet, somewhere to congregate, somewhere to share ideas, somewhere to belong. And they started using the White Raven Tavern. And of course, as soon as a group of black people started to meet in this pub, all the white people said, we're not using it anymore. It's got black people in it. So very quickly, it became exclusively their place to hang out, to meet, to socialize, to share ideas, and to move forward with this new community of freed people. And that's when the Duchess of Huntingdon says, you need something better than a public house. And she actually paid for it to be leveled, and a proper chapel with a proper place, a meeting hall, and proper facilities for them to actually be able to meet. And that's where the Zion Chapel comes from. And that worked absolutely fine until they realized society was not changing its attitude. They were still not welcome. So the whole community upped and left for Nova Scotia. They just hired a boat and off they went, leaving the empty building. And that's how the Baptists moved in and built their church, which went bankrupt. And that's how we took over their church and moved in and put the building that is there today. And so far, I still haven't said Whitechapel Mission. And there's a reason. And the reason is, it was never called Whitechapel Mission. I started there in a, uh, 1982, and everybody keeps saying to me, Whitechapel Mission. Why? In fact, I can go back to my childhood and say, Whitechapel Mission. It was never called that. It was called the Working Lads Institute, and the Working Lads Institute of the Methodist Church. And in 1996, I actually gave up, wrote the letter to the charity commissioners and say, I surrender. Please rename it to the Whitechapel Mission. Because there's no point in me trying to keep telling people it's called the Working Lads Institute. And they literally said, at last, thank you. So if you go to the charity commissioner's website for the Whitechapel Mission, you will see it says, formerly known as the Working Lads Institute and formerly known as the Working Lads Institute of the Methodist Church. How many of you can imagine not hearing of the Whitechapel Mission? It's only 20 years old. And yet I would argue that most people have known it as that name for nearly 140 years. Beyond me. The building that we're in starts on the ground floor. And it's supposed to be custom built for our work. But one afternoon I discovered that the toilets had blocked. So I have to find where these drains are and they're all underground. And I found a manhole cover and I lifted this manhole cover and I discovered when I stared down a huge basement underneath the Whitechapel Mission. So I dropped in there to discover every spider and rat and nasty thing you could think of was down there, as well as tons of rubble, both from the building as it was built and from the old buildings that had just been knocked down. And literally all they had done was drill some holes into the floor 
put in some posts to hold the building up, put in a flat concrete base and built up from there. So the whole history is still just underneath the concrete slab. So what I did is I got down there with some shovels and some picks and we pushed all the rubble as far as we could afford to push it, built some walls inside to keep the rubble out of sight and keep the rats and spiders away, and we started using the basement to expand our work. But if you look on the plan, can't say this, it's on the radio, isn't it? If you look on the plans for the Whitechapel mission, there is no basement. So if you ever come and visit and you go down the stairs and into the basement, you're not even there. It doesn't exist. But as part of that, as was clearing the rubble out, I suddenly find the old walls to the Baptist church. And I find the older walls to the Zion Chapel. And I find the even older walls, or the, at least the foundation stones, for the White Raven Tavern. All of the documents, all of the photos, are currently sitting in the Archive Museum of London. There are hundreds of thousands of photos, hundreds of thousands of documents. There are the actual negotiation documents between the Whitechapel Bow Railway and the Whitechapel Mission so that they could purchase part of our building. There is the, the artist's impressions and the architect's drawings of the refurbishment that happened to the old Working Lads Institute in 1926. There is the original constitution signed by the Lord Mayor of London and the founding members of those businessmen. Three of them called Bevan, Tritton and Barclay, who had just started something called the Barclay, Bevan and Tritton Company Bank at 54 Lombard Street. But Tritton married Barclay's sister and Bevan married his niece, so they decided just to call the place Barclays. These people founded that Working Lads Institute in 1860 and their signatures are still on the paper. The annual reports produced between 1876 and 1949, and that's when Bevan died, say in the back page, please send all donations, care of Mr. Bevan, 54 Lombard Street. We didn't have a bank account number, we would just go and see Mr. Bevan and say, can we have some of our cash, please? We need to pay the staff or make a purchase. We were only given a bank account in 1949 when Mr. Bevan died. The Lord Mayor of London, and you can remember that that is an annual post, you're only Lord Mayor for a year, was our Chair of Trustees from 1876 until 1949. And he only gave up because now that Mr. Bevan's dead, they thought they could get away with not adding that extra burden to their workload. I really wish I could get that guy back because that would actually do such a huge amount for our PR if you've got the Lord Mayor of London as your Chair of Trustees. So that's the history. I've been there since 1982. When I get there, I am actually incorrectly educated because my degree was in computers. Not much use when you're working with people who are on the streets. I went back to college to study social work 
And as a result, one of the first young people that I met was a young lady called Patsy, who was 24 years old. And at 24 years old, she had had a full hysterectomy already. She'd had seven pregnancies. Two had gone full term and been removed and put into the care system. There were two abortions and three miscarriages. But the abuse her body had taken had actually required a full hysterectomy by 24. She's got no front teeth. They'd been kicked in by one of the gentlemen that didn't like the services that she was offering. And over a period of a few weeks, I got to really like this young woman. She had an honesty about her that was scary. In the society that we live in, we have to follow certain rules. If you fancy somebody, you can't just tell them. You can't just say, get your coat, we've pulled. Doesn't work. There's a game we have to play. But Patsy doesn't do this. If Patsy fancies you, she'll just say, I fancy him. Do you want to go to bed? It's quite refreshing and it's quite scary. It would be lovely if everybody could just be so honest, but it would never work. Our society would collapse within hours. So part of the conversation I say to her, why do you do this? You can't be making any money doing this. Well, yeah, she says, on a good night, I can make 35 pounds. Then I've got to ask, how much do you charge? She went, five pounds. I went, no, no, surely like the, isn't there a menu? Isn't there sort of like a, a selection of services that a gentleman could choose that have different prices? She went, no, everything's five pounds. I went, right. So you have to sleep with seven men each night. She went, no. And I'm going, yeah, seven fives are 35. She went, no, it doesn't work that way. She says, I get arrested at least three times a week for soliciting and I get a standard £35 fine from the magistrate. So the first seven men I have sex with, that money has to be put aside in case I'm arrested. The next ten men I have sex with pays my pimp to make sure that I'm not robbed or mugged. So the next seven men that I have sex with is my money. Who did this to you? Who put you on the game and how long have you been on the game? Oh, my mother did. What? Yes, I've been on doing this since I was 11. What mother could do that to a daughter 11 years old? Until I met mother and discovered that she's a street prostitute in Spitterfields Market and has been since about the age of 11. And grandma is a street prostitute. And actually, if you trace their family history, they've been on the streets of Whitechapel since Jack the Ripper was running around killing these young ladies. And if you look at the penny and tuppence those ladies were charging in 1888 against a week's wages, and you compare it to Patsy charging five pound against a week's wages in 2017, nothing has changed. At all. The same young ladies, many of them even related to those young ladies of 1880, are still on our streets selling their wares for a penny or twopence a time. She comes in one morning and she says to me, Tony, she says, 
I need to speak with you. And I said, I'm, I'm busy at the moment. I'm with somebody. She said, no, 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 I need to speak to you now. So I made my excuses and I sat down with her and I said, what's the problem? She said, I got arrested last night for soliciting. And I went, right, there's nothing unusual about that you told me. She went, yes, she says, but they didn't find me. So I said, okay, so what happened? She went, gave me this and gives me this big wadge of paper. And I start reading through the papers. I said, oh, you've been bound over for psychiatric reports. She went, yes. And I said, you understand what that means? She went, no. I said, okay, the magistrate is concerned that he's seeing you too often and he wants to make sure that you're not being abused and everything's okay upstairs. There's nothing wrong with my head, she says. And I went, Patsy, you know it. I know it. The magistrate just needs to make sure. So what he wants you to do is see a head doctor. And once the head doctor's written the letter saying there's nothing wrong with your head, the magistrate will say, fine, 35 pound please. Yes, she said, I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. I said, they're going to write to us and let us know when your appointment is. I keep reading. I said, oh, you've got a curfew. She went, yes. I said, have you got any idea what a curfew is? She went, no. I said, did the magistrate not say to you, are you prepared to accept a curfew? Yes, yes, that's exactly what he said. And I went, and you said yes. She went, yes. And I said, but you don't know what a curfew is. She went, no. And I said, that doesn't make sense. She says, my mum says, if it's going for free, you always say yes. <laughs> Guys, yes, it's funny. What I'm trying to do is describe for you the mentality of this young lady that has basically been abused since the moment she was born. She's known nothing else but that abuse. She doesn't see it as anything wrong. This is normal. So I explain to her what a curfew is, and I say to her, if you're found on the streets after 10 o'clock at night, you're going to be arrested. You can be visiting a friend, yeah? You can visit a friend, you can pop to the garage, or you can be in Brick Lane. They will arrest you. Do you understand? She goes, yes. Now, I'm going to break from that because I need to share something else with you. You've heard that I've got an MBE. What you didn't hear is I have a criminal record a mile long. I didn't know I had this. I hadn't, didn't even know I'd even broke the law until I discovered that a number of our homeless gents who were arrested usually for alcohol abuse, drunk and disabled, drunk and disorderly, when the police officer's name, Tony Miller. <laughs> my age seems to vary from arrest to arrest. Sometimes the colour of my skin will vary, but the name always seems to be the same. We had a gentleman working with us for a while called the Reverend John Lines. Only stayed with us for five years. He moved on to Dover. About five years ago, I get a knock at the door from a police officer who says... No, he didn't say that. <laughs> About five years ago, I get a knock on the door from a police officer and says, you wouldn't by any chance know John Lines? And I said, yes, I know him very well. Would you be able to identify him? I went, yes, why? We found him dead under a park bench in Al Tabali Park. I went, I don't think so. He's a minister in Deal just outside Dover. And they went, no, I've known him for 20 years and I've just found the body. 
So I go across to the Royal London Hospital, we go into the morgue, they open the drawer, and it wasn't the Reverend John Lyons at all. It was another one of our drunk homeless folk that had not used my particular name, but had used John's instead, that case. The reason I'm sharing this with you is, I have a very good reputation with the local police, and when they ring me up at two o'clock in the morning to say, she's been arrested, breach of curfew, I wasn't surprised. She wants to know if you'll bring her some cigarettes. It's two in the morning. But she needs a cigarette. So I climb out of bed, I go down to the garage, I get some cigarettes, and I go across to Bethnal Green Police Station. They won't let me in the cell, but they will let me talk with her. And she insists she wasn't on the streets. She cannot understand why they've arrested her for breach of curfew. I speak to the desk sergeant, the custody sergeant in the, and he says to me, two police officers driving along the Whitechapel Road in their little panda car, turned into Osborne Street, which becomes Brick Lane, and saw a taxi, a black cab, parked up on the right-hand side of the road with a queue of men by the door. The door opened, a man got out into the road and walked away, the other side door opened and a man climbed into the cab. Intrigued, curious, they felt they really ought to take a look at what was happening in the cab and discovered Patsy in the back of the cab selling her wares at £5 a time. When I pointed this out to her, she said, but I wasn't on the streets. I share this because the speech started tonight with somebody very kindly saying what it was about. The links were the poverty, the desperation, the prostitution, the addiction. Nothing has changed. Patsy was removed from school at 11 years old by her parents, who they themselves had no formal education at all. She was put into the family business as though it was something quite normal. And as a result, everything that follows behind is expected and even predictable. What can we do as a mission caring for the most vulnerable, the uneducated, the most poor of our community when I wasn't on the streets is the response to something as serious as this. No formal education, never worked, and no true understanding of anything other than street living. We can get hundreds of people off the streets each year, and we do. We can reunite people with their families all the time, but at the same time we have to accept that the damage done to some people is so great and so serious that there is nothing that can be done to undo. Patsy is now off the streets. She's got her own place to live. We even found her a job which she managed to keep for two months. She quit because she couldn't stand having to get up in the morning to go to work. She described herself as a night person. So she's on benefits, and every time she gets short, every time her pocket is empty, you will find her in Brick Lane selling her wares at £5 a time.
Two weeks ago, the police knock at our door. They've had a complaint from a neighbour. There is a woman, must be in her 80s, giving a hand job to a bloke in the doorway to the mission. We burst out laughing because we know exactly who they're talking about. Let's go outside and it's Patsy's mum, still to today, selling her wares at five pounds a time. And the gent is in his 80s and he's been a customer for the last 60 years. There are some people we can help and there are some people we can't. The history of Whitechapel is very important to me because it's only from our history that we can learn and try and actually create our future. But also have an understanding that some things do not change and never will. Yeah, okay. That's, that's great. That's great. Thank you so much, Anthony. This is what we tend to do is we tend to have um, a break, about 15 minutes, and then after the break we tend to take questions. Does that sound, sound good? good? Yep. Um, is there a question that you wanted to ask? You have a question? Yeah. Can we? And then, and then we'll go for a break after that. Yep. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Then I'll hold the mic. You mentioned the Zion Chapel. And in the 1880s in Wales, every year they, they view what's happening to the poor people in London. And every year they mention the Zion Chapel, which is next door to the London Hospital. Is that the, build, the same building or the, a different one? That is the actual yeah. building that was on our site until 1860, when the Baptist Church was put on top of it. But that is the Zion Chapel. Talking about it in the 1880s in, in in the Cardiff papers. Yes. Every year they did a review and mentioned what was happening in the East End, and I always thought it was something to do with the Welsh, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. No, oh, I mean the, the, the oddity is with that. It's the same as the Whitechapel Mission being called the Whitechapel Mission when it never was. Even though the Baptist Church had taken over and built their own building, they still called it the Zion Chapel, because it was always known as. That's great. Okay, everyone, let's take a 15-minute break here, okay? That's going to be about uh, 22, and uh, then we can take some more questions. Um, and thank you very much, Anthony. Well done. Nice. Thank you very much. What we're going to do in this second half is, what we usually do is just take questions. Was there something that you wanted to say first before we start, or would we just go straight into the questions? Just very briefly. Um, Mike and I have been having a conversation and we've come to the conclusion it cannot have been Tower Bridge because Tower Bridge wasn't built then. So although we have two documents, one suggesting Tower Bridge, it has to be the tower for the Ravens because the bridge wasn't actually there. Okay, so let's just continue. Has anybody else got any questions that they'd like to ask Anthony? Yes, we have one right here. Go ahead. You said that the kids as young as 10 had to run the risk of getting sent to prison. Was that right? They'd send 10-year-olds to prison. Yeah, right. sadly. Wow. Okay. Great. Thank you, Sue. Tony, could you tell us a sort of a typical day at the Whitechapel Mission? Wow. Or is there no such thing? Uh, I think that, yes, there is no such thing. There is the fact that there's a pattern. The staff come on, uh, we start at 4 o'clock in the morning. We do the preparation in ready for the doors to open at 6 a.m. They must open at exactly 6 a.m., not a minute to or a minute past. 
I don't know if any of you on a Sunday morning have been to B&Q. You know it opens at 9 o'clock. You can see all the staff wandering around in the shop, but the doors are still locked at 9 o'clock. By 10 past 9, you are now quite frustrated because it looks like they're just chewing the fat and taking their time. You go through that door already irritated. Add to the confusion and the, and the upset that you've slept on the streets all night. You're cold, you're wet, you're desperate to use the toilet and our do doors don't open until five past six. We've got problems because that person's going to come through the door angry. We're also working with a group of people who are um, very chaotic in their lifetime. What we want to demonstrate to them is that we are the opposite of chaos. We are something that you can guarantee to rely on. We are the rock. So the doors open at exactly 6 a.m. And to do that, we use a computer. So the doors will open by a computer. It makes us look good, and it actually means we keep the promise. And then we offer an opportunity to use the bathrooms. And it sounds daft, this, but let me ask all of you, why is it whether you stay in a five-star hotel in the best country in the world, whether you can go and visit your mother, whether you go to the pub lavatories here, why is it there's no lavatory like yours at home? Why is yours so special? Because it's cleaner than anybody else's lavatory. The answer is no. It's the privacy, it's the dignity, and it's the fact that you can just take your time and you know who else has used it. So very importantly, we have to offer these that dignity to those people coming through our door. So it's very much about how do you want your coffee? We will make every cup of coffee and every cup of tea to order the way you want it. When you have a shower, we don't give out clothes. Pick the clothes you wish to wear and just browse the rails and take what you want. When you use the bathroom, here's a brand new razor and a brand new toothbrush every single morning. Because if you're on the streets, where would you keep the toothbrush? And would you want to put it in your mouth the next morning? So every day they have to be replaced. What we're trying to do is to demonstrate to all of the people we're working with, especially the Patsies, you are worth more than this. And you are worth us getting out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning to make sure that we can demonstrate your worth. We take care of the physical body. By 9 o'clock we're offering the advice work, the counselling and the encouragement to look at a different lifestyle. And then in the afternoon, it's classes, numeracy, literacy, budgeting, cooking, anything that we can actually skill them up with that would give them a chance of independent living. And to make it even worse, I live on site. So when I get back there tonight, if there's people knocking on the door at two in the morning saying, can I have a sleeping bag? I'm hungry, can I have a sandwich? There's always somebody about that can actually make sure that they get at least somebody to speak to. That's a right. normal day. And after saying that, there isn't such a thing as a normal day. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So we've got another question from down the back, and then I'll come to the front. Go ahead, Samantha. Okay, um, basically, you were talking about people that can't be helped, like that uh, girl you were talking about. Um, does your work ever become demoralising? Because you can't change anything. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Young lady knocks on the door two weeks ago. Stunning looking. Looks really fit and well. Beautifully dressed, got a push chair with a young child in it. She knocks on the door and she just says, Tony, I just wanted to say thank you. I'm married, I'm doing well, but I wanted to say thank you for work because when I was down, you were there for me. And I said, you're very welcome. I'm glad we could help. She walks away. I had no idea who she was. 
I spoke to Sonia, who runs our social work, and she went, yes, you remember her. Drug addict, used to use heroin, pop marks, really skinny girl, lank, dark hair. And it suddenly I recognised who it was. We can help so many people, but at the same time we have to understand there are some that our idea of help isn't their idea of help. So we have to actually take that into account. And it just takes one young lady to knock on the door and say, thank you, and suddenly everything is rosy in the garden. There's also the fact I'm married. So I have got the support, and don't any one of you ever tell her this if you get a chance to meet her, I will kill you. I have the biggest support network in the world in the sense that she is behind me in everything I do and she actually is the one who gives me the strength to do what I'm doing. So I have got that also. If I go home in a depressed state, she very quickly lifts me out of that and starts my next day fresh again. Don't tell her. <laughs> OK, another question here from the front, from Ed. Um, yeah, you said about the uh, clothes. Do you, uh, what do you do? Do you take in second-hand clothes and wash them and give them out to them so they have clothes? What, what's the situation there? We take in second-hand clothes. We don't wash them. This country has some of the proudest people in the world when it comes to donating to charity. People will actually dry clean, press and actually fold clothes before they donate to us. And most of the clothes are in immaculate first-hand condition. They're just worn. They've been used. And most of the clothes that we give out are only going to get worn today. Because by tomorrow they will be filthy dirty and we have to actually replace them again. We're looking for 175 pairs of underpants a day and socks just to facilitate those people going through the showers. And of course they want a clean pair of trousers and a clean shirt and t-shirt. And of course today it's raining so they need a jacket and tomorrow the sun's out so they've dropped it somewhere. And this goes on every day. We need four four-ton lorries a week of clothing. And somehow we managed to get that so that we can constantly be giving out clothes to anybody that needs them. Wow. Okay, got another question here from uh, Mark Galloway. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a sort of silly question. How many breakfasts do you actually do every day? At the current time, and our auditors just pulled me up on this, because I actually put in our annual report up to 300. And when they actually added up the number of breakfasts we had served, it's 311 a day is the average for the year. So it gives you some, so 11,000 in the first year that we were open, and it was 113,000 last year. It, it's wow. a sad reflection that we're 10 times bigger than we were 100 years ago. We okay. mean uh, 10 question. times more people needing the help. Another question down the back from Ruby. Go ahead. Um, I, think, I think you said that you worked in computers yes. originally. What was it, what was the defining moment that made you want to go and work, uh, do charity work? Thank you. Wow. Good question. Okay, this is, it is a bit long-winded, so I'll make it as short as I possibly can. I was brought up by two of the most loving parents that one could hope for. I have a brother a year younger and a sister three years younger than him. And this couple really were loving caring, encouraging. They encouraged me to go to university and I was one of the first in the family to actually get a degree. When I came out of university and my mum said, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I'm actually going to join the police force. And she questioned why when I've just got a degree in computers. And over the next few weeks begged and pleaded with me not to join the police force. I couldn't understand why. 
she said to me, if you're that adamant, we need to sit down and talk. We sat down in the kitchen and she said, you're not my son. 22 years old, they suddenly hear this. Turns out that my mother and father were told they could not have children, so they adopted a little boy. And the moment they adopted that little boy, she fell pregnant with her own little boy and then subsequently with her own little girl. So at 22 years old, I am shared, the story shared with me that I am the adopted son in the family. Their argument was things had changed by the natural birth of the second child and that it could make things difficult if one of us thinks that we're not part of the family. So the two of them decided I didn't need to know and I was never going to get told. But if I join the police force, the background checks they'll do on me, I will find out and she can't have me find out that way. I could have gone off the rails very easily, but the reality is the love, the care, the moral compass, and the discipline she had given me over the years. Actually, everything I need from a mum, you gave me. Everything I need from a dad, he gave me. I joined the police force. Maggie Thatcher came to power. I very quickly left the police force. I'll let you draw your own conclusions from what steps and how fast it happened. And I then used my degree and went into computers in the city. I went to the Whitechapel Mission as a volunteer. And the one thing I noticed straight away, a third of the people that we were serving had gone through the care system as kids, come out of care at 16 and ended up straight onto our streets. Why was I on this side of the counter and they were on that side? Purely by the fact that two loving people had given me a home to live in and a chance. I quit my job so that I could try and readdress that balance and give them the chance that I had been given. And I've been ever since doing the same. I do not think yet I have paid back the debt that those kids deserve. So I will carry on working. Bet you wish you had NAS now, it's such a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a question here at the back and then I'll come to the front, yeah? Why do you think homelessness has increased to such an extent? I work at crisis over Christmas and I have noticed that there's been a great influx of Eastern European homeless. Can you elaborate on that, please? Okay. Um, you are right. I mean, first of all, I need to tell you, and I missed this out on purpose, but we founded crisis. Our trustees at the Whitechapel Mission started Crisis 40 years ago to actually fill the gap at Christmas, which is why it was Crisis at Christmas. And then Crisis went on its own way and actually has grown to this fantastic organisation which is now national. Um, and we benefit from Crisis because they, the work they do at Christmas actually advertises the plight of the homeless to the whole country and all of the homeless charities manage to ride that wave and actually get publicity and funding from that. So I've got a lot of, I like crisis. Problem we've got is two different questions in there. The first one is the Eastern Europeans. So I'll answer that first. Somebody told them, we're gonna shut the door and not let anybody else into this country. So what happened was people who were not ready to come over here yet, people who hadn't got jobs lined up or houses lined up, had to get through that door before the door shut. And as a result, we've seen an increase in rough sleeping homeless people from the Eastern European countries. 
the people who were coming from Eastern Europe for jobs and for work and for housing, they were still flowing at the same rate. But those individuals who were struggling had to get through the door before this rumour that we were locking it. So that explains that one. A third of all of London's homeless went through the care system as kids. Our care system is not working. Now let me explain something. Last year there were 960,000 babies born in the UK. Just short of a million babies. And there were 780,000 deaths. So the population did not go up by much if you look, ignore migration. But we've taken 10,000 children into care this year alone. 10,000. Last year it was only 6,000. So the population of, has gone up within the care system by 4,000 children this year alone. Did we fund more social workers to look after them? No. In fact, we've actually cut the funding to the social work departments. Did we find 4,000 more foster families to look after those children? No. There isn't the funding either. As a result, those children went into foster homes instead of foster families, and by 16, the government acknowledges a fifth of them will be expected to be sleeping on our streets at 16 years old. Our care system is getting worse. The number of adoptions in this country is going down, not up. Although there has been a, an upturn in the last two years. It's almost impossible. One of you smokes, one of you is overweight. They'll find an excuse why you can't adopt. As a result, that explains a third of London's rough sleeping. Currently, 20%, one-fifth are ex-services. Young men who are coming out of the army that are actually struggling to survive in our society afterwards to find work, alcohol abuse, mental health issues regarding trauma, and suddenly we've got more people on our streets. About a fifth have got severe mental health problems and shouldn't be anywhere near our streets. But then there is the others, which are again about a fifth, who have been through the prison system and now just cannot get anybody to trust them with work or housing. And as a result, all of these issues could be addressed if we threw huge amounts of money at those different areas in a time when there isn't even enough money for us to be able to look after our elderly or look after our kids. So I believe that you'll see in the next five years, homelessness, rough sleeping will double again. Wow. And there's nothing wow. we can do, and I'm not going to blame this government, because the last one didn't make any difference, and the one before that didn't make any difference, and the one before that didn't. It's a continuing trend. Wow. Okay, another question at the front here. You mentioned that it's not, or it was only in 96, I think you said, that you checked the name became officially the Whitechapel Mission. Before that, was it referred to as the Whitechapel Mission? And if so, how long ago did that start? From what I can understand, it was always referred to as the Whitechapel Mission. I, you know, even um, as some of the eldest supporters that we've got say, but I thought I was always supporting Whitechapel Mission. And so they've been supporting us 60, 70 years. And as far back as I can see, even the archive documents have got written across them, Whitechapel Mission. And yet I don't understand why it was never called that until 1996. So I think it's one of those East End things where, you know, uh, you can call something whatever you want, but if the locals decide it's being called something else, it's <laughs> called something else. One at the front. We'll one at the front, right. OK, there we go. Um, you probably, I don't think you mentioned it, but you probably know that the, uh, the first floor room was used for the inquests in the, uh, the Jack River murders. Uh, are there any pictures in the archives of the, of the rooms? Yes. Photographs. Okay. 
the first two murders of, of, of those prostitutes in 1880, the inquests needed a public building to be held in, and the biggest problem was the only public buildings in Whitechapel were public houses. So they were held in the Working Lads Institute, the first two, up on the first floors. Yes, there are photos, they are in the archives, although I do have some glass negatives that were made at a later date from something or other. They're not the originals. That's how I know that they were copies. Then there is also the table that was sat at to actually host the inquest. That is still sitting in the Whitechapel mission today. But the chair that was used got damaged and lost about 20 years ago. But the table is still there. It's up on the first floor in the mission now. What do you use as a work table or something? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. just sits there as a table, and, you know, just the same as this one here is with some... People actually will sit and use it all the time. It is nowhere near as large as you would think it is, but it is still sitting there today, yeah. And it has a value. Our insurance company keep telling me that it's worth a lot of money. OK, there's only um, one question I'd like to ask you, actually. I had a couple of people at the, the break were asking, can we come and see your basement? It sounds fascinating. See all the history down there. Wow. <laughs> um, First, yes, well, I'm going to make the question a little bit broader. Can you come and visit at all? The answer is yes. We always welcome visitors. There is always an opportunity for a cup of tea and maybe even a spot of breakfast if you get there at the right time. Although you'll be sitting next to somebody like Patsy who may ask you for five pounds. Um, <laughs> but you're welcome. Um, you could also come and down if you wanted to and actually work alongside us. So if you fancied volunteering and coming to serve breakfast, to sit and chat with people and see if there is anything that you can advise or help with. Um, most of the people we're working with do not require the work of a professional social worker. They need common sense. <coughs> Excuse me. And you will be very welcome. Um, the basement is a little bit more complex. We pushed all the rubble out the way and I put some breeze black block walls up to protect us from those spiders and, uh, and rats. So. I built into those walls when I built them two foot by three foot doors which are screwed shut to stop anybody. If you want to go behind the door and have a look for yourself, you would be welcome. I have not been behind that door in 20 years. I do know that there's no light, there is rats, there are spiders, but there is also the history. So if you want to have a look, please come and have a look. Okay. Great. Well, that was a terrific talk. Oh, we have one more question. Sorry, Anthony, one more question. What time's breakfast? <laughs> what eight, time's breakfast? 8 a.m. I went there before a year or two ago, but it was at the weekend and it was closed. Are you closed at weekends for visits, then? What's the hour? What's the okay. story? If you're going to come, let us know. I'll tell you what. I mean, today, I have spent all day doing the account. We have no fundraising team at Whitechapel. Every penny that donates gets donated to Whitechapel is used for direct expense. We have something called a 100% donation policy. Not a single penny goes for fundraising teams, admin teams. So as a result, weekends means that once we've finished at noon, my job is accounts, it's writing the reports, it's writing... So when people say, can we have a biography? You know, you have to sit down and write this, and all happens on Saturdays. So if I don't know you're coming, the chances are... But I'm sitting in there, that's the weird thing. So I would welcome you on a Saturday. Just give us a shout, let us know when you're coming, when's convenient for you, and we will make sure somebody's there for you. 
Okay, that's great. Well, everyone, I think you can agree. What a terrific talk and what a great guy. Anthony Miller, ladies and gentlemen. And that was Anthony Miller speaking at the June 2017 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. For more information about the Whitechapel Mission, please visit their website at whitechapel.org.uk and please make a charitable donation to the mission if possible. I'd like to thank Mr. Miller, the Committee of the Whitechapel Society, for its continued partnership with our podcast, and especially our sound man, Steve Ratty, for making the release of this talk possible. If you would like more information about the Whitechapel Society to become a member, look at their list of speakers and events, purchase books or subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, please go to whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference talks about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and related areas of Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.